The Holocaust remains one of the darkest chapters in human history. Adolf Hitler's concentration camps and extermination centres redefined evil. Auschwitz was the most deadly, the site of the largest single mass murder the world has ever witnessed. An estimated 1.3 million people were sent to the camp. More than 1.1 million died. And of those prisoners who made it out, tens of thousands of them were too weak or sick to live more than a few days, weeks or months. Today, very few are still alive. The last survivors and their stories are now scattered across the globe. So when I found out one of those stories was waiting to be told just down the road from my home here in Australia, I knew I needed to meet this 98-year-old for myself. Press record on that. Recording. Cool. What you're about to hear is the unbelievable journey of a boy from Holland who survived the horrors of the Holocaust to become a hockey legend. On the ice, he was known as the Flying Dutchman, and no death row or death camp could clip his wings. I was given a life and I will defend it and I will do the best I can with it. And now, as he fights his final battle against a slow and silent killer, David Dickie Gruntman wants you to hear his words in the hope humanity may finally learn from its evil past. My name is Mac Lyon. I'm an Australian journalist from Brisbane. I've travelled the country and the world telling stories. For years, I was a crime reporter on the Gold Coast. It was my job to dig into the grisly underbelly of the glitter strip. In that time, I covered some truly horrific cases, unaware that just up the road, living in a granny flat at Ormo, was a man with a tail to top them all. Now, a day after his 98th birthday, with cancer slowly consuming his body, David Gruntman, or Dickie Mann as he goes by today, shares the intimate, extraordinary and often confronting details of the near century he spent on this planet. They're details he rarely shares with anyone, and there's a reason for that. What he's been through is difficult to believe and even harder to comprehend. How a Dutch teenager living in absolute bliss, destined for sporting stardom, could find himself in a cell sentenced to death and escape that hell only to end up in another. Auschwitz. Consigned to long, gruelling days carrying coal and corpses in the bitter cold, it was friendship, fortune and fearlessness that saw Dickie somehow survive a carousel of concentration camps and finally journey across Europe by plane, train, bike and boat to reunite with loved ones who'd been in hiding for years. Before starting a new life 
far from the horrors of his past. Now more than 75 years since his liberation, Dickie's skin may have wrinkled and the numbers tattooed on his left arm may have faded, but his memories of the atrocities he endured remain sharp. He doesn't miss a beat. Names, locations, dates, down to the hour. He plucks moments in time from his mind like he lived them yesterday. But I suppose when you've witnessed what Dickie has, it'd be hard to forget. Well, Dickie, thank you for, for taking the time to sit down and talk us through this life of yours, which, <laughs> I mean, I've heard some stories, but I've never heard so many stories from, from one human being and a human being who's been through so much. <laughs> How old are you now? You're, you're, you're 98? 98 since yesterday. Yesterday was your, was your birthday? That's right. And you, you had a party? Yes, we had a great party. <laughs> a lot of people came. And we had about what, nearly 50 people. And several came from Sydney all the way. Pretty special in a time yeah. like we are at the moment. Not easy today, no. Can you believe you've made it to 98? <laughs> it's hard to believe, but unfortunately the clock stops for nobody. David Gruntman was born at 6pm on Tuesday the 18th of June 1923 in Amsterdam, where the Gruntmans had lived for more than 350 years. Their name means green grocer, and that's how his ancestors had long made their living, until the Gruntmans entered the diamond cutting trade. His father, Elias Gruntman, was a qualified diamond cutter at just 18. His mother, Rosetta, a talented dressmaker by the same age. And then there was Betty, his beloved big sister. Well, my sister was seven years older, so actually I didn't have a sister and a mother. I had two mothers because she was my mother too. <laughs> Being seven years older, of course, yeah, that was fabulous. And she bought skates too when I started skating. She had to go. And we have photos with us together skating. And... Uh, that she was good at swimming and tennis, so that was her sports. And you were close? But we were very close, yeah. My father had branched out in those days. Your father, so he... Now he ended up in Belgium because we had... He branched out in the amusement industry, like the slot machine, pinball machines, cranes, all those machines. And he started with them as we lived in Holland. He started with them, he brought them in from America, he set them in cafes like we have here now, in pubs and so, he set them all out. And then suddenly there became a law in 1936, it was, no gambling in cafes also, so he had to take all his machines out. And he had quite a few all over the place, you know. I remember the two big furnishing vans coming from Belgium and picking up all the machines all day and taking them. And he ended up in Belgium and it was in Belgium, no problem. Wow, so this was, I guess, early days for pinball machines and all these yeah, game machines. Yeah, that was the beginning, yes, yes. He was a bit ahead of the game then. He, he was very advanced, yes, yes. And he moved the whole operation to Belgium? The whole operation went to Belgium. We had a business in Antwerp, we had one in uh, Blankenberg, and we had one in Brussels. We had three lunar parts go, Swartlands going, with machines in it, you know. And that was his business. And business was going well? Very well, yeah. So did your father live in Belgium then? Well, that, that is a bit of a 
conception for normal people because you oh he lives in Belgium you know, it's 140 kilometers <laughs> it's, nothing. it's up the road here <laughs> yeah, it's up the road but uh, we were going to go to Belgium but my mum wanted me to my sister got married just before the war and so she wanted to stay there till after she was married and then another year for me to finish school and then we would have gone all back to Belgium again and that's where the family would spend their summer holidays together, riding bicycles and swimming at the beach in Blankenberg. Life was good for the Grundmans, better than good. Well, I think everybody looks back at this youth and most people, if times are normal, it's paradise. We had everything. There was nothing in my world was missing or what I would want. I felt myself very rich. I had a pair of skates and a pair of football boots and a push bike. There was nothing else I could wish for. And you were quite good with those skates. Yeah. You played ice hockey. Yeah, when I did start, you sort of start? Yeah, well, I started when I first saw skating. I was five years old. But I couldn't see their feet. I saw people on the end of the street going up and down very fast. And I said to my mother, why are those people running? My mother said, they're not running, they're skating. I said, what is that, skating? Well, they have things on their f under their shoes that makes them go on the eye. Oh, I want to see it. And I dragged my mother to the end of the street to sort of have a look at this, all these people with these things on their shoes. And they're flying over the eyes up and down. Said, oh, I want them too, I want them too. So a few weeks later, I got my first skates and uh, put them on and Away. In those early days, Dickie won a skating competition at the local rink. The prize was a year's free membership. So that's where he'd spend every spare hour of every day. And how long was it before you started playing quite competitively? No, I was about... Uh yeah, about 12 years age. Then the coach came and they saw, we have all sorts of sports on the ice. We do ice dancing with the girls, we do handicap racing, and then we play ice hockey. And then I started looking at the ice hockey, and the coach saw me skating. He said, you should come to hockey practice. So I asked my mum and said, yeah, go ahead, not knowing that how much money it would cost me. <laughs> because you have to have skates and sticks and gloves and elbow pads and this and that. And with soccer, you just have a pair of old boots and that'll do. <laughs> so that got quite a shock. What was it about ice hockey? That uh, I was totally fascinated. That's all I can say. There was nothing else in the world for me. Only get those skates on. And before long, Dickie was flying. I remember all those games. The first game with the juniors, of course, Amsterdam juniors I played. And then I got selected for the representative Amsterdam team. And then we get to the seniors. And then I think it was 38, I had my first international. I was 16 years of age. The youngest international in Holland. Playing his first game for his nation as a boy against Belgium in Belgium. The future for this talented teenager looked bright, and it wasn't just scouts in the Netherlands taking notice. Could have changed my whole life. An incident in 1938, I was international playing, and we always had every year two coaches. 
Canadian professional coaches. And there was a coach by the name of Will J. Kirby. And Mr. Kirby went to my dad and he said, Mr. Ben, your son has a lot of potential. And I talked to my wife. We have a boy at home, same age, and he's playing junior hockey. And if you like, we can take, they can come and live with us and learn hockey, you know, or get into the good hockey. And uh, my dad said, oh, that sounds good, but not this year. First, he got to finish the school. So the next year, the German walked in Ottawa, and moved into Canada in 1939. And who knows? He didn't mean to do that, but he, he thought he was doing right. The first of many sliding door moments that could have seen Dickie and his entire family escape the torture and torment of the years that were to follow. We were going to go to Belgium, but my mum wanted me to... My sister got married just before the war, and so she wanted to stay there till after she was married, and then another year for me to finish school. And then we would have gone all back to Belgium again. We didn't have a clue about the war. A sentiment shared by the population. Even when Adolf Hitler invaded Poland on the 1st of September 1939 and England and France declared war on Germany, citizens of the Netherlands had no immediate cause for concern. Their nation's foreign policy was neutrality, as it had been for a century. The Dutch had dodged foreign conflicts, only taking sides when attacked. It worked in World War One. They believed the Second World War would be no different. I heard my father and his brother talk, and they say, well, ah, in the First World War, they never entered Holland. They went from Belgium to France. But the French and the Belgians, they built the Maginot Line, which is a fortress all along, so the Germans couldn't get through there anymore, so they had to go through Holland. And so, on the morning of May 10, 1940, Dutch families woke to the sound of roaring aircraft engines, the start of five days of fighting that ended in Germany's occupation of the Netherlands. When was the first time you noticed things starting to change? Well, the, the day and time and minute that the Germans came into Amsterdam with their trucks and then, and then we had the idiot Dutch people standing there, Heil Hitler, and then I got a shock. Oh, things are never going to be the same again. They invaded and they took everything off. Everything was taken off. And what was that period like? Can you talk? Painful. Yeah. It's, it's a shock to the system. It, it, it's unbelievable. From one moment to the next, such a fast difference in living circumstances. It's very hard to comprehend. And your family, how did they handle it? Well, fortunately, most of my family was already in Belgium, even my grandparents, and they all went to America. Realising the dangers, they fled the Netherlands not long after the invasion to start new lives in America. Only Dickie's immediate family had stayed behind. His mother, Rosetta, and her mother, Dickie's grandmother, Dina, Dickie's sister, Betty, and her new husband, Arpie, were still living in Amsterdam. 
And your father, he was still... Yeah, he was still in Belgium, but he came to us to pick us up, to come with the rest of the family to go to France. And he had a car with him, and then my father said to my sister, you and Appy and Mum and Dickie in the car, we have to leave immediately because the rest of the family is sitting in Ostend in Belgium waiting for us to come. And then uh, my brother-in-law said, I, I don't go away from my sister and my parents. I can't leave them behind. And my father said, well, we've got barely four seats in that little car. I can't take two more people. And then my sister said, well, I'm not going without my husband. And then my dad said, well, obviously, that's your right. So he said to my mother, you and Dickie go in the car, we're leaving. And then uh, my mother said, I can't. I can't leave my daughter. And then she said, you go with the boy. Go, we'll manage. And then I said, no, no, leaving the women behind. So your father stayed? Stayed and paid the price. Elias returned to Belgium. The rest of his family remained in Amsterdam. Dickie was still going to school as his city and its citizens changed before his eyes. With the Dutch people, they're the good ones and they're the bad ones. So fortunately, my friends are all the good ones. And uh, so we had a group and clubs and dance clubs and so and, and And we had socials. And in the socials, you started noticing they were doing this and you know, they were, they were the big boys because they were pro-German. Sitting in his Gold Coast living room, Dickie gestures a Nazi salute. All these years on, you can see and feel the anger he still harbours as he recalls those people who caved and conformed to the extremist regime and turned on their fellow countrymen and women. So a lot of people that did wonderful things to save other people's lives. And there's other people but betrayed people for $25 to the Germans. Good friends, neighbours, everything. That's when you can see where, who your friends are. Many, like Dickie, weren't practising Jews. They were only Jewish by relation. Being Jewish is, 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 is a very complicated thing. The first question you ask is, what is being Jewish mean? Is it a religion? Is it a race? It's not a race, so it's a religion. And if you don't follow the religion, you're not Jewish. But that doesn't how, how it works under German law. With all their prejudice, the Germans went, managed to kill for nothing because nobody gained one inch of land. Not one country gained any. Everybody lost. Surrounded by old photos of his glory days on the ice, Dickie recalls a moment in late 1940 when the danger of his Jewish lineage was laid bluntly bare. He was meant to play an international match in Germany. Well, the, the captain came to my father and came home to us and he said, look, there is no 
obstacle at the moment, but we can't take the risk. Because he's from Jewish descent and God knows what these Germans would. So we not there. we can't take the responsibility, take your son off into Germany. So in Amsterdam he remained, attending school by day and saving lives by night. A very, very good friend and her husband of my parents. They're from way back from when they played soccer together. They're very old friends even because that's we call them auntie and uncle. <laughs> they're not my real auntie and uncle, but we call them that close in family relation. Her name is Truce, which is a Dutch name, so we call her Auntie Truce. And she and her daughter and her husband were all involved heavily in the, in the underground. She ran a lot, a network of young people like us, and she was the big organizer there. The underground was the Dutch resistance, a cause Dickie and his closest allies risked their own lives to advance. Cycling the streets of Amsterdam under the cover of darkness, they were armed with food stamps and fake IDs. See, we had push bikes, and after eight o'clock, Everything is closed. Lights are out. It's only German police in the street, but they can't catch us on the push bike. So we have push bikes with no lights on them, and then we deliver our newspapers and whatever papers, whatever messages to be done. We were the, the, the running boys, you know. Do you remember any close calls? Yeah, yeah. We went two, three nights a week of us out. But yeah, we delivered illegal newspapers at night. And uh, there's a newspaper in Holland, the Parole, and it was started in the war, really. It started in the war as an underground newspaper. And that was a way to get the message out. We also had a, a, a group of people, they falsified ID cards, and we gave them to people we knew needed them, you know. I guess looking at it that way, I mean, that, that was saving lives. Oh, yeah, we saved lives, of course. Was it getting to the point where you'd realised that... Well, there was, it, it was getting. One of my friends in the underground got notice he had to go to Germany to work. So he said, I'm not going to Germany to work, so now I can't blame you. He said, um, but I've heard so-and-so made it to England. So that's it. So we started talking. And I made some inquiries. So Dickie travelled to Belgium to see his father and hatch a plan for his Dutch escape. When I went to see him, I talked to my sister, I remember. Then she said, yes, go, go, go. And uh, I was going to go to stay with my father or go with him away or in hiding, whatever. But he had gone the night before. He got betrayed and that picked him up. And I've never seen him again. Instead, when Dickie knocked at his father's front door, he was met by a panicked maid. Well, when I went to the door, she got nearly a heart attack when she saw me. And uh, she said, oh, oh, she said, go to the cafe, I'm coming in a minute. And she pushed, closed the door, pushed me away, and I went to the corner, have a coffee, and then she came in, she gave me back. said, oh, my darling, she was devastated. And then uh, she told me what happened the night before. 
And she gave me a wallet with money and she papers and whatever. She said, don't come near here again because they must know something that they betrayed your father. So then I walked around, I went to the business of my father and they were still opening. And I, uh, I took the train back to home. Do you know what happened? Yeah, the 22nd happened? of September he arrived in Auschwitz and got in the gas chamber. But at the time, all Dickie knew was that his father had been arrested and he could be next. With a wallet full of money and blank Belgian passports, he knew then it was time to leave his life in Amsterdam behind and make a daring journey across Europe with his friends to join the front line. After I go back from the disaster finding my father gone, I came back to him and said, like, yes, boss, I mean. So the four of us made a plan to go next Tuesday night, eight o'clock, the train leaves for Antwerp. From Antwerp, we go to Paris, from Paris to Switzerland, where's the Dutch embassy uh, sending boys to England for the army. So we go do that. So the four of us get organized, and one of them, one of my friends, one of those boys from the underground, he lived in an apartment with another fellow, not knowing anything, but he talks openly to them that what we're doing and that we're going and so forth. So we go to the train and sit in the train and the, the German police are sitting waiting for us. He'd be greatest. He probably got $75 or so for the three of us. Do you still remember that moment when you saw saw the German officers on? Oh, of course. We were just sitting in a compartment like this and then from all sides with the rifle on your head with about 10 policemen. To arrest boys for getting on a train? Yeah, yeah. Joe Grun, Andre Vandenberg, Jackie Jacobs and David Gruntman. Four boys, friends, on a train bound for freedom, ready to fight for their fallen nation, whose fates now hung in the balance. We got sentenced to death. All four of us. Thanks for listening to the Flying Dutchman podcast. Before you go, Dickie and I have a big favour to ask. As you've heard, David Dickie Gruntman has a remarkable life story that has captivated humans across the world. This entirely self-funded project has been downloaded more than 30,000 times by people from more than 35 countries. Since the podcast launched, there have been resounding calls from listeners for this series to be turned into a documentary. Now, with your help, we plan to make it happen. At almost 100 years old, Dickie will be making his final journey back to Amsterdam, the city where he was born, to celebrate this milestone birthday in June. But this is about more than just a celebration. It's about capturing the story of a survivor and sharing his wisdom with the world. To donate to our cause, head to storiestold.com.au or follow the link in our show notes.